Welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.4, Building the Libyan Arab Republic. Last episode, we saw how a 27-year-old delinquent army officer led a coup to topple the government of the Kingdom of Libya. Today, we'll explore the immediate aftermath of Muammar Gaddafi's 1 September coup. By dawn on 1 September, Gaddafi's free unionist officers movement had control of the country. The problem was, no one had ever heard of him before. Libya woke up to the news that some guys, identities unknown, had toppled the king. Gaddafi, who immediately promoted himself to the rank of colonel, would be the face of the revolution from the start. The identities of the other members of the 12-man Revolutionary Command Council, or RCC, would not be publicized for another four months, on 10 January 1970. Surprisingly enough, the RCC was composed mostly of civilians. It was soon clear, though, that none of these RCC members were part of the ruling aristocracy. Most of them, like Gaddafi, had been born in small towns and villages, and it came from essentially nothing. The RCC used this to their advantage, and the Libyan people were initially enthusiastic about the new leadership, which knew the struggles that everyday Libyans faced. After all, under the king's patronage, a minuscule minority had gotten filthy rich while the majority were left to barely scrape by. Although from the start the RCC was intended to make decisions as a body, Gaddafi bullied his way into running the show from day one. His voice carried more influence and authority than anyone else on the council. Within a few months, the RCC would be an afterthought when compared to the power that Gaddafi himself had personally amassed. The fervor of the RCC and Gaddafi to create a new Libya was only surpassed by their inexperience. The oldest of them was in his mid-30s. Gaddafi was 27 at the time of the coup. These guys didn't have any experience in running a government. They all strived for a new, modern Libya that was able to stand on its own two legs, but they didn't really know how they were going to do that. So the first thing the RCC did in the realm of foreign relations was to call on Egypt to A. approve of their coup, and B. to provide practical experience in governments. As you'll recall, Nasser had overthrown the Egyptian monarchy in 1956 and had ruled there ever since. Moreover, Nasser was Gaddafi's hero and inspiration. Comically enough, Nasser had never even heard of Gaddafi before the 1 September coup. Because if the people of Libya hadn't even heard of him, why would the leader of the Arab world's most populous country hear of him? Egypt sent experts to advise the fledgling government anyway, and other Arab nations like Sudan, Iraq, and Syria immediately recognized the new regime in Tripoli. While some Arab nations, particularly those with ruling monarchies, were slow to accept a military junta that had just overthrown a king. In the aftermath of the coup, royalist officers and members of the royal family were arrested and often tried on television. The king himself was sentenced to death in absentia, and the army underwent a purge of senior military officers. The sentences, though, were normally light in nature, and no one was actually killed. The Sunusi Order was hobbled after the Sunusi Islamic University was closed in Cyrenaica. While the new Libya would welcome Islamic law, it would not permit the king's supporters to interpret that law. Also, Gaddafi set about expelling the hated Westerners. In March 1970, the British evacuated their last footholds in Tobruk. By June, the Americans were forced to evacuate Wheelis Air Base which was converted into a Libyan military airfield before eventually becoming Tripoli's Mitiga International Airport. 
The RCC then seized greater than 50% of the capital held by foreign banks in Libya in early 1970. In October 1970, Gaddafi and the RCC declared trade deals involving Libya's crude oil to be unfair. By the next March, the RCC had secured higher taxes, back pay, and better pricing from the oil companies. This would bring an extra $1 billion into the treasury every year. Let's not try to downplay the role of oil in Libya since its discovery. It was and would continue to be the lifeblood of the country. Prior to the discovery of oil, Libya was wholly dependent on all kinds of aid from the richer countries of the world, which was practically everybody else. In 1959, they discovered oil and production quickly ramped up. By the late 1960s, the oil found in the Libyan desert was fueling the whole economy and was the one sector that was handled with any amount of skill. But by extension, the wealth it brought landed in the hands of a few men, and the horrible amounts of corruption it brought with it sickened Gaddafi to his core. When Gaddafi's coup succeeded, he and the RCC inherited a well-run oil industry that would continue to be the cash cow to fuel all of Gaddafi's eccentricities and foreign policy ideals. Finally, the last of the Italians that remained in the country were expelled, as were Libya's remaining Jews, never mind the fact that Jews had lived in Libya for centuries. Quote-unquote, Western vices were also banned shortly after the coup. In March 1970, Gaddafi personally took a detachment of soldiers and closed down two casinos in Tripoli that were still operating. Step by step, the RCC was eliminating foreign influences. The same month as the coup, the RCC launched a quote-unquote green revolution aimed at tackling the nation's lack of food production. Land was taken from private hands, much of it from the remaining Italians, to be used for food production. Except, food production is torturously difficult in the desert, and though the Green Revolution would attempt to build a massive irrigation system, the costs of this effort were often too high to be sustainable. Gaddafi would continue trying to make Libya an agricultural powerhouse, though, and we'll see later how his great man-made river project would be an extension of this program. On the social front, the revolutionaries announced the launch of housing projects to provide housing to all with running water and electricity which most of the RCC themselves had grown up without. The first medical school in Libya was established in 1970, and the first dental school in 1974. But there was a catch. A lot of these housing projects, particularly, and some of the other projects by extension, wouldn't ever get off the ground because, as you might imagine, purging a functioning government, kicking out the foreigners, and seizing foreign assets and businesses meant that a majority of people who actually knew how to, you know, govern and keep an economy operating were gone. A sharp economic downturn hit Libya in the wake of the coup. The country's saving grace was that the oil was still flowing and the world still had an appetite for it. One thing that the revolutionaries did not immediately set about changing was the status of political parties. Just like under King Idris, they were still banned. Newspapers were also heavily censored, co-opted, or simply closed. By 1972, the press was fully co-opted to support the revolution. Even still, the government-sanctioned newspaper, The Revolution, was occasionally shuttered when its content was not revolutionary enough for Gaddafi. Oh, and strikes were made illegal too. Gaddafi and the RCC weren't going to let a little thing like freedom get in the way of their ambitions to completely reshape Libya. The coup makers promised to return civilian government within a few months of the coup, 
and they kind of did. The RCC was composed of mostly civilians. In fact, in the days immediately after the RCC's appointment, there were only two military officers who were members. Gaddafi took the role of RCC chairman and military commander-in-chief and was duly promoted to the rank of colonel. On a side note, I don't think we'll ever know why he didn't name himself a general or even a generalissimo. I find it curious that someone who thought so highly of himself wouldn't immediately do so, especially when you think about his later conduct. Gaddafi also served as the Prime Minister from 1970 to 1972. Not only did he take some big portfolios for himself, but he set about making all important decisions for the RTC in just about every other sphere. He would call meetings where the council would talk in circles for hours, only to accomplish nothing. Remember, experience was low amongst these guys. Gaddafi then started showing signs of erratic behavior. Meetings in the middle of the night were common, and making members of the RCC wait for him to show up, sometimes hours later, became fairly common. Even more alarming, Gaddafi began to override the decisions of his peers, and berate them for not knowing how to do anything. Yeah, because a 27-year-old knows how to run a government. When Gaddafi didn't get his way, he'd storm out of meetings and go to the desert for days to sulk. Once, he walked out of a meeting claiming to resign to go fight for the Palestinians. Another time, in 1972, after a council meeting, Gaddafi left Libya in a fury, only to show up at Egyptian leader Anwar Sadat's residence claiming to want to live like any normal citizen. Gaddafi's hero, Nasser, had died in 1971. We don't need hindsight to know that Gaddafi couldn't live like any normal person. The world was just too small for him. While in Egypt, he toured factories and gave lectures. In less than three weeks, he showed back up in Libya, acting like the episode had never happened. Gaddafi had taken all practical power in the RCC, and effectively all of Libya, really, and now he acted like Farouk Assault in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And the tactic worked. Without Gaddafi, the RCC was at a loss. They still couldn't make a decision without hours of debate. And without Gaddafi's guiding hand, they really were sunk. Like, no direction at all. Not that there weren't men up to replacing Gaddafi. On the contrary, with Gaddafi's erratic behavior, it was only a matter of time before someone tried to oust him. With surprising speed, someone attempted to do just that. In December 1969, a coup plot was uncovered in which Adam Said Hawaz, the Minister of Defense, and Musa Ahmad, the Minister of Interior, were accused of trying to oust Gaddafi to take power for themselves. Later in mid-1970, two distant cousins of the king and some tribal members from Fazan were accused of an attempted coup. After this second plot, the RCC was shuffled around and eventually was controlled by military officers and not civilians. Still though, some high-ranking RCC men did resign in the first couple years after the coup. No matter. Gaddafi had a vision and no one was going to get in the way of that vision. In 1970, Gaddafi made a trip to Algeria and signed a whole bunch of agreements that the other RCC members weren't exactly thrilled about, including one that aimed at the eventual unification of Libya and Algeria. You see, the rest of the RCC was suspicious of Algeria's motives. In 1972, Libya joined with Egypt and Syria to form the Federation of Arab Republics. Although ultimately doomed to be a failure, Gaddafi's insistence on creating a pan-Arab state was to happen as quickly as Gaddafi could wish it. When RCC ministers and officers questioned these moves, Gaddafi openly accused them of not being loyal to the cause. 
When the Libya people did not respond well to Gaddafi's radical changes, he got frustrated. Young men weren't signing up for the army, and with the economic problems facing the country, the lofty housing and farming projects the RCC had announced were making almost no headway. The people, it seemed, were glad the old regime was gone, but weren't so on board with all this new craziness. It was during this time that Gaddafi stormed off to Egypt for 15 days. When he came back, all the members of the RCC told him that they had accepted his resignation. Gaddafi responded that they couldn't accept a resignation as they hadn't been elected. They reminded him that he also had not been elected, and in response, he reportedly said, I have popular support, and I'll give my resignation directly to the people. Needless to say, Gaddafi didn't ever give his resignation to those people. In a speech to mark the anniversary of the Prophet's birthday on the 16th of April, 1973, Gaddafi stood on a stage and warned the Libyan people that the revolution faced a grave danger. For this reason, Gaddafi wasn't resigning. He was starting a quote-unquote popular revolution. He announced that he had a five-point plan that would do the following things. A. Repeal all existing laws and replace them with revolutionary enactments. B. Eliminate anti-revolutionary elements by acting against perverts and deviators. C. Stage an administrative revolution to abolish all forms of bourgeoisie and bureaucracy. D. Arm the people in order to protect the revolution and E. Forge a cultural revolution to eliminate all influences that did not stem directly from the Quran. In effect, Gaddafi had just changed the game again, in a way no one was expecting. Libya was to become something entirely new. Gaddafi was creating his Jamaharia, a kind of people's republic. The RCC was in shock. Gaddafi had not informed anyone of his intention to not only stay in power, but to drastically change the system that was still being built under the RCC. If any of them had any plans to maybe take control away from Gaddafi and continue ruling as a council, they didn't have the support to carry it out. Plus, most of them were still, despite all of his fits and starts, loyal to Gaddafi himself. This was totally unexpected, but they could do nothing but strap in and hang on for a wild ride. Join me next time as we look at the next phase of Gaddafi's master plan for Libya and how direct democracy and rule by committee is actually not very practical, especially in a place with no history of democracy in the first place.